Hello and welcome to Stranger Than Fiction, a series of podcasts from Slate and New America Foundation about the future as seen through some of the eyes of today's best science fiction writers. I'm your host, Tim Wu, and my guest today is Alistair Reynolds, who is author of Redemption Arc, Revelation Space, and Chasm City, among other works. He joins us from the BBC Studios in Cardiff, Wales. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Good to be here. So let's uh, start right into it. And I I thought I'd start by talking about space, which uh, seems to be... You said once, I think, that space is just something you've always been interested in. Yeah, totally. An all-consuming obsession, I think, from from the very beginning. Well, that's a a good way of of putting it. One thing uh, I wanted to ask about, uh, you know, you've been... I'm the same since I was a kid. I always looked up and I thought, well, that's where we're going one day. But... um, Growing up, I, I feel like we've gone to space less than we used to. I, I sort of assume we'd be on Mars by now. Uh, particularly here in the United States, there's been postponement after postponement. Do you ever feel a little sort of disappointed with the exploration of the final frontier? Yeah, on some level I do. I mean, when I was a kid, I used to collect these um, these little, little pictures they gave away in bags of tea. <laughs> and there was one set which was, it was called the Race into Space. And this was like the very early 70s, and I collected these, and you, you, you glued them into a book, and it, it confidently assured me that we would be on Mars by 1985. And that, you know, 1985 was a long way in the future, in the sort of early sure. 70s. And, of course, 1985 rolled round, and then we were given more promises. We were going to get a big space station, and that was going to be the springboard for going to Mars by, you know, the year 2000 or whatever it was. And none of these things have come to pass. But on the other hand, we do have a space station up there, and we do have, you know, we, we've sent space probes to some, you know, fascinating places in the solar system. So we need to look at both sides of the equation, I think. No, that's definitely true. I mean, one of the things, I guess, and this is something you've pointed out before, is things are just so far away. Do you ever think, well, we like space, but maybe when, you, when we think about it, maybe we're just never going to get to some of these places? Well, I think, you know, you, you can always make a case that the stuff beyond our solar system is, is too far away for us ever to reach. You know, there's a, there's a difference between going out to, say, Pluto, which is six light hours away, and the nearest star, which is four light years. So there's a huge gulf between the stuff we can get to relatively easily and the sort of, you know, the stuff that's just a bit further away, which is which the nearest stars. So, yeah, I think it's an open question as to whether we'll actually get beyond the solar system. But I don't see any reason why there won't be a, a continuing and developing human presence in the solar system. We already have a permanent presence in space at the moment, even if it's only sort of three people up on the space station. <laughs> yeah, well, they're, they're there. It, does, it, does count for, it doesn't count for something. You know, one of the things um, I, I was thinking about, when I, when I read your books, and obviously science fiction doesn't have to be uh, exactly realistic, but it you know, has to make some, uh, some effort to, to do the science, I think, particularly in your case. How, how do you reconcile that when you think about your own works? The size of the galaxy, the size of the cosmos, and the fact that people in your books are going from planet to planet? Well, the way I look at it, there's sort of two ways you can sort of come at the the sort of scale of the universe. You can do the sort of Star Wars route where Han Solo can get in the Millennium Falcon, he can press a button, he can be on another planet by lunchtime. And that, that gives you a sort of, you know, an amazing chance to tell very fast-moving, packed stories, you know, like, like Star Wars. But if you want to convey the sense of, sense of the sort of immensity of space, I think you have to emphasize the distance and, and the, the time it takes. And for me, that means playing... You know, playing true to Einstein, if you like, and saying that as far as we're aware, nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. Within those parameters, I don't think there's anything inherently impossible about interstellar travel, but it's obviously going to take a long time. Right. And I'll add that the the, uh, the speed of light is a major plot element in your books, it feels like. I think there's one uh, character who 
due to a clerical error, ends up <laughs> going uh, to the going to the wrong planet, and therefore uh, loses her husband essentially because they've now aged uh, by thirty years difference. Yeah, I mean, one one of the things I found was that by and I was by no means the first science fiction writer to do this by by putting that kind of constraint into the books that you can't travel faster than light. Okay, you close off some types of story. But lots of other ones open up and you can start, oh, actually, that would be quite interesting to be sort of stuck on the wrong planet. And you know that by the time you get back to the place where you should be, everyone's going to be 50 years older. <laughs> so it opens up possibilities that were maybe not there before. Let me uh, talk a little bit uh, about something else in your book. One of the things that happens in your book is that there are actually a lot of changes to humanity. Um, you know, there's specific subgroups of humanity, and I won't go into all of it. And there are implants in people's brains that sort of change their personality. Some people change their appearances. But the one thing that doesn't seem to change is that people aren't exactly more peaceful or able to get along well with each other. And and I wonder if you write with some kind of idea of human nature that doesn't change and some things you're willing to change. Yeah, it's a little bit of both. I think it really does depend on the on the book in question or the story I'm working on. I, I don't have a, a sort of fixed philosophy about this. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about your more your more recent work? Well, I felt that I mean, speaking for myself, and also looking at the sort of the wider field of science fiction, there's been a lot of debate, I think, in recent years about um, should we say optimism versus pessimism? That's a little right. bit too too simplistic, but that that debate is there: utopianism versus dystopianism. And science fiction is a very broad church, and it, it should be, I think, and it, it would be very boring if all science fiction writers were, were doing the same thing at any one time. But I think there's there's a perception that in recent years the sort of um, the barometer has sort of swung a little bit towards overly dystop- dystopic negative futures. Right. And I do genuinely love those stories as well. But I think there's room for the stories that can show us the sort of other side of the coin as well. When I was a kid reading Clark's novels, often there were no overt bad guys. There were no no villains as such. The motor of the story tended to be the unknown or, or the, you know, space itself, if you like. That was enough of an adversary to sort of keep you turning the pages or the, or the you know, the sheer mystery of exploring an alien planet or an alien structure. So I, I want to sort of reconnect with that a little bit in my own writing and sort right. of push the optimism slider up a little bit. <laughs> Uh, one of the things you've said you, you're interested in is SETI research and looking for traces of alien creatures. And I, I wonder what, if you could talk a little bit about what got you interested in, in the search for alien life. Well, I'm, as I said, a, 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 someone who grew up watching Star Trek and Doctor Who, and the, the notion of the alien was sort of implanted in my mind at a very early age. I've always understood that there might be these things out there. And at first they were um, frightening, I suppose, because... I was also aware of UFOs, and I, you know, I don't particularly believe in UFOs anymore, but the, the notion of the alien, I think, is still a perfectly respectable idea that we can think of scientifically. I mean, we can debate the, the, the existence or otherwise of aliens, but there's nothing inherently nonsensical about the idea. And science fiction is an amazingly uh, rich way of examining ideas about alien intelligence and life in the universe. I mean, you can you can really get into some really quite deep, abstract, philosophical waters in science fiction. And for me, that's that's why I think the trope of the alien is something that's been has been in science fiction for decades. But there's no there's no sort of evidence that we're sort of exhausting the possibilities of that theme. And as as a writer, obviously, I want to play with it, and I want to, you know. <laughs> approach the, the notion of the alien, whether it's the absence of aliens or the, or the presence of them. There's, there's so many different ways you can come at it and what, what it means for us as a species. 
Well, thinking about it now, I mean, uh, the SETI is this effort, as you've described and people, many of our listeners yeah. may know, to try and scan the horizon, the, the world, and see if we pick up anything that seems like alien uh, life or uh, traces traces of alien communication. Uh, do, you, do you think we're not trying hard enough? Do you think we should be really trying to f- spend more effort trying to find out if there actually are aliens out there? Well, the amount, amount of money we spend on searching for extraterrestrial intelligence is really just peanuts. I mean, it's just nothing in sort of societal terms. But I don't, I mean, I think the people involved in it all have good ideas and good intentions and, and the, the right approach given, given the, the resources available to them, which is basically let's build lots of radio telescopes, let's plug these radio telescopes into computers and we'll search the radio frequencies and we'll try and find some, some kind of uh, evidence of an intelligent signal. But it's an incredibly difficult, difficult process. I mean, just searching a radio, you know, a broad radio signal for some kind of imprint of intelligence really does eat up computing power. And they can only point these telescopes at one, point, one part of the sky at a time. So they have to sort of draw up a sort of list of candidate stars. So they really are if you like, looking at looking for a needle in the haystack, I think. And the, the thing that concerns me, I mean, and, and you know, we're, we're sort of 50 years into SETI and they found nothing. There's like one wow signal from, from the 60s mm-hmm. or 70s. But we've really found nothing. And I, my, my thoughts are if, there are, if there is sort of intelligent life out there, they probably aren't using radio signals anymore. They're probably using something like, you know, neutrinos or the Higgs boson or, or <laughs> gravity waves or, so, you know, something we can't even imagine now because it's beyond the sort of horizon of our physics. And the only reason that we would detect signals from them is if they want to be detected. And they may well, you know, you could, you could have a sort of a galactic super, super civilization next door chatting away happily to another galactic super, super civilization. I can't say super, super civilization today. Um, but they might have no interest whatsoever in their signals being intercepted and decoded by sort of inferior species along the line of path, along, along the, the communications line. So we may be sort of knocking against that, that limit that if they don't want to be detected, they may not ever be detected. Right. How would it be possible? Well, I guess it's hard to say to communicate without using something on the radio spectrum. It just seems to me, I mean, the, and by here we just don't mean radio as an AM, FM radio. We mean all kinds of of waves, right? That's what I, that's what they search. They're searching. They're searching with, yeah, I mean, the moment they're, I mean, with one or two exceptions, they're searching the electromagnetic spectrum, which is, I mean, for for most of the 20th century, we've sort of known how to make signals in the electromagnetic spectrum and also how to receive those signals. So it's kind of given us, I think, if you, not not blinkers as such, but it's, we we need to remind ourselves that there are many other ways that you could send a signal. And if if you think back to the, the big storm last year about the possibility of faster-than-light neutrinos. If you remember the, the mm. experiment in CERN where they, they generated um, a pulse of neutrinos, they sent it through whatever it was, 500 miles of solid rock, and they detected it in Italy, and they found this anomaly in the arrival times, which made some people think there might be a faster-than-light signaling thing going on there, which wasn't the case. But nonetheless, it's still pretty amazing that they were able to generate this beam of neutrinos, squirt it through the Earth, and detect it. So you think about neutrinos, they're actually, you know, uh, they travel at the speed of light, as mm-hmm. near as damn it. Um, you know, you, you could send them through a planet and out the other side, so you don't have to worry about anything getting in the way. But we have the means to, to detect a signal. So, you know, I, I start thinking, well, maybe the, 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 the guys out there, maybe they're using neutrinos instead of radio because neutrinos are just much a much cleaner more efficient way of communicating, or maybe they're using gravity waves. 
well, or it, something else. It's certainly possible. What, 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 since we're on aliens, that we've so almost begun to talk about Fermi's paradox. I wonder if you could explain to our listeners just what uh, Fermi's paradox is. Well, Fermi was uh, Enrico Fermi was a, a physicist who was very active in the uh, sort of the, the, the middle part of the 20th century, heavily involved in the Manhattan Project. And but he, he he sort of was a bit of a polymath, and he was always thinking about lots of different things. And one of the the sort of puzzles that he alighted on was the question of is there intelligent life out there in the universe, particularly in our galaxy? And Fermi's uh, line of thinking, as I understand it, was that if there was an alien civilization somewhere else in the galaxy, in the galaxy, it would be relatively simple for them to come and meet us. They could travel, even if they can only travel at, at, at below the speed of light. The galaxy is not that big a place compared to the universe, so they could get here in a few, say, a few tens of thousands of years. And his argument or his puzzle was that, in fact, there doesn't seem to be any evidence of that. We look out into the night sky. We don't see fleets of alien spaceships flying around. We look out into the solar system. We don't see any obvious evidence that anyone's been here before us. There are no alien footprints on the moon that, 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 that we found. I, I, I agree that there's a lot more searching to be done. But wherever we've looked in the solar system, all we find is essentially soil that's never been trod on, if you like. And also, as, as astronomers know, you, know you, you can look deep into the galaxy and you can see lots of evidence of stars going, uh, planets going around stars, um, binary stars, systems of stars. There's no evidence, as far as we understand things, of any tampering. You know, no, no alien civilization is out there moving planets around or doing anything weird to, to their stars. You know, if they're, the anything galaxy, like, if they're anything like us, you'd expect to see at least some advertisements or... Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Maybe yeah. some shopping uh, well, malls. Or, <laughs> yeah, and in fact, some of, the, some of the sort of kind of more wacky ideas in SETI are sort of directed along looking for that kind of thing, which I think is really interesting. But it's a, it's a very sort of low-level enterprise at the moment. Um, so, there, so there's tremendous room for improvement in terms of the way we search for these signals. But at the same time, I have this sort of ominous feeling that we're not, you know, no matter how good we get at it, there's not necessarily going to be anyone out there. Now, there's a lot of theories as to why we haven't seen any traces of aliens, uh, even though, you know, it's quite possible, given the size of the galaxy and the number of planets, as you say, that there should be at least some traces. And one of them is the theory that... Um, once a species becomes advanced enough, it, it destroys itself, or the people in the species destroy each other, the doomsday scenario. And there's a lot of other theories. And I, and I wonder if you have any particular theories you, you happen to um, agree, uh, uh, find agreeable as to why we haven't found uh, or seen any traces of aliens anywhere. Well, the thing I come back to is that, yes, the, the galaxy is... Um, there, there are numerous stars in the galaxy. There are billions of stars. And as far as we know... Many of those stars have planets around them, and of course there are other galaxies. So you, you look at those numbers and you think, well, statistically, there must be someone else out there. There must be another civilization with guys sitting in a studio asking the same question. But the flip side of that is that the galaxy is not particularly old. Um, you know, In cosmic terms, an age of a few billion years is not that old. And if we look at the history of life on Earth, we know that as far as we, as far as we can tell, life... As in single-celled organisms replicating, life got off to a very, very early start on Earth. As soon as the Earth was cool enough, life flourished. Um, but basically, life just sort of ticked over. It just sat at that level of single-celled organisms for billions of years, literally billions of years, until things started getting a little bit more interesting. We started getting multicellular organisms. Um, I think 
around about a billion years ago, but I'm not a biologist. But then half a billion years ago, we start getting sort of significant invasion of animal life into the oceans. And then run the clock forward again, you get the dinosaurs, but we're still just dealing with mindless animals. And it's only in the sort of last cosmic instant we get the evolution of tool-using creatures, creatures that use language, creatures that have culture and society, creatures with technology, which is us. And I think someone said, you know, the, the, the sort of history of intelligent life on Earth is like the last layer of paint on the top of the Eiffel Tower. It's really just, just an afterthought. And I, my sort of suspicion, and it's not an idea that I've originated, it's, it's an idea that's well out there in the literature, is that intelligent life may actually be quite rare in the universe. I mean, life in terms of sort of single-cell organisms may be plentiful. And I guess within 100 years we'll know that because we'll have explored enough of the solar system to get an idea about whether there generally is of you know whether there gen- generally are other life forms out there in the solar system i don't think we're going to find anything intelligent and my feeling is that as we push out into the galaxy if we ever do that or as our observations improve we'll find much the same picture we may well find life on other planets but i'm i'm fairly doubtful that we're going to encounter anything we could have a meaningful conversation with so within our lifetime the the alien landing you think is pr- pretty un- getting pretty unlikely yeah, I'm not putting any money on that one, no. 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 And I really hope it doesn't happen because it's going to just ruin the plots of about three novels I'm planning to write, you know. <laughs> I wondered um, if there's any other – obviously you're interested in, in a lot of issues to do with uh, space and so forth. Are there any other tech or, or science policy issues that you pay attention to on an ongoing basis? Well, I try to be as broad-minded as possible in my reading. Of, I'm very, very interested in um, the whole question of – peak oil at the moment mm. are we is that going to be a problem for it is it going to be a phantom you know a problem that sort of melts away in the in the same way that you know at the end of the 19th century you know peak horse manure was it was a major <laughs> problem you know in right. in terms of the way that people foresaw you know new york city was going to be swamped by horse manure if things carried on the way they were going but of course they didn't carry on the way they were going there was a radical you know a disruptive technology which was the motor car I mean, I try and read about these things. I'm sort of trying to be aware of what's out there, but I'm always just hideously behind the times in terms of adopting technologies. And I'm not really that interested in actually acquiring and owning these technologies until they've been out there for a long time. And I only just got a mobile phone a couple of years ago. <laughs> so you write about the 24th century, but you prefer to live in the 1980s somewhere or 1990s. Well, it's worse than that. It's worse than that. I mean, I wrote the first draft of Revelation Space on a manual typewriter, and they had to sort of drag that, you know, from my from my fingers, I didn't want to let go of it because I was so wedded to the the sort of uh, functionality of, the, of the, the the manual typewriter. That seems yeah. I mean, I think as a science fiction writer, you can take a slight distance from these things. You can sort of be interested in technology. You don't have to have it sort of filling your house. Are you worried about just on the Google glasses? Are, you call them Google glasses, and I wonder if you, you are concerned at all about the the rise of. Uh, private power in the, in the technology uh, industries, you know, whether you're concerned that, well, these aren't just you know, glasses provided by some benevolent entity, but an entity that wants to sell you advertising, or, or is that not something you're concerned with? Oh, I'm very concerned with it, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, did you see that spoof that someone did within a few, I think within a few nanoseconds of the, of the announcement of Google Glasses, someone had put a, a spoof up on YouTube where they were showing what targeted advertising would look like, you know, it would be absolutely <laughs> horrible. You'd only have to look at a cup of coffee and then all these sort of windows would start popping up telling you where your nearest coffee shop was. And, you know, you don't want that in life particularly. But, um, I mean, I, I was uh, 
Googling, yeah, they, there you go, Googling, an absolutely universal expression now. But I was looking for information on a, a piece of hi-fi equipment the other day, and, I, and I've, I've really irritated now by the, the way that the advertising has been directed to me because of that Google search I used. Mm. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm expecting to find it in my car now, you know. Come and look, come and shop here, or don't think about using this system, think about using that system. So it really annoys me, but we seem to be stuck with it. So many people think the future of space uh, may be more commercial than governmental. And I wonder if you think that's a cause for hope or a cause for concern. A few years ago, I would have, I would have said it was a cause for concern because my, my sort of sympathies have been aligned very much with the national and transnational space agencies. I worked for a space agency for many years. It was a, a thoroughly enjoyable experience, and I have a lot of friends who work for the European Space Agency. I also have friends in NASA, and... I know these people have, you know, they've devoted their careers to this amazing um, enterprise, which we, we we can all be excited about. But the fact is that, you know, we're decades on from the last time any human being left near Earth orbit, and it's very frustrating. And I, I have to say now that if private enterprise can step up to the plate and and begin to supplant some of the things that NASA was doing, like ferrying astronauts up and down. To, to orbit, maybe that would then allow the NASA and the other space agencies to, to begin doing some of, the, some of the things we really wanted them to be doing 30 years ago. The thing I've never understood about the commercial vision, and maybe you can explain this, is I, I don't see the commercial part of it. In other words, I can understand why tourists might want to go up there maybe to experience it, but I can't see as an ongoing basis why your average Joe would want to go to space. It's not like you're going to Europe for a business meeting or something. You're sort of just going up there and then there's nothing there. Or maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Well, I, I, I had the pleasure of meeting an astronaut once, and he'd been up, I think he'd been up twice at that point. He's been up three times since then. And he said to me, he said, if there was one thing I could do, I would take every single person on the planet up into space, show them the Earth, because it is that kind of life-changing thing. It just genuinely shifts your perceptions when you see the planet Earth from space. And I think everyone who's been in space has pretty much said the same thing. So I, I, I'd pay for it. I'd go. If, if it was something I could afford, uh, I'd be up there like a shot. Whether it's something that you can keep scaling up and doing for decades and decades is difficult to, to, to tell. A lot of people pay a lot of money now to go into space. They'll pay, they'll pay uh, $200,000 or whatever it is to go up into the technical, you know, the legal definition of space. They won't be in orbit. They'll be weightless, weightless for a few minutes, and then they'll come back down to Earth. There are people willing to pay for that because there's a waiting list. But if a 1,000 people have already done it, does the cachet then evaporate a little bit, and does it then become something that people are not particularly interested in paying for? I don't know how that's going to go. It'll be interesting to see, and we're, we're going to find out, I think, in the next few years, one way or the other. We probably will. Well, Alistair, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Tim. I've been talking with science fiction writer Alistair Reynolds. I'd like to thank our producer, Tori Bosch, our engineer, Chris Wade, and Andre Martinez of the New America Foundation. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. I'm Tim Wu. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.